loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming author I.B. Casey Cui, also known as Maritza Ronio Refuerzo. Maritza is a Cal Berkeley alumna and current pickleball student at her local recreation center. She received her MFA at Mills College, where I graduated from, where she studied fiction writing and English literature, as well as enjoyed magazine and newspaper feature writing classes under the tutelage of a former editor at Mother Jones. Casey Cooey is a former copy editor for tech media companies GameSpot, Ziff Davis, CNET, and InfoWorld. She co-heads a foundation whose mission is to advocate programs that that promote the well-being of dogs and provide children with language and arts enrichment. She's a 26-and-a-half-year colon cancer survivor. Her debut novel, Groovy Girl, is about a young, feisty, Filipino-American girl whose 19-year-old wunderkind sister is diagnosed with colon cancer amid the chaos of an animated, dramatic, extended family. Partial proceeds of Groovy Girl will benefit four nonprofits, one of which is the Strides for Life Colon Cancer Foundation. Welcome, Maritza. Hi, thank you. I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm so glad to have you here. And of course, we know each other a little bit through my sister-in-law. We have actually met in person, which is always a pleasurable experience for me because most of my guests I never meet. So um, I'm really glad I have that that, um, personal experience of of being with you in the same room, which is especially notable because you don't live where I live and covid so it's kind of a miracle but exactly i was traveling during covid just to promote this book yes and and the other thing we kind of have in common is that an experience in our in our lives of um impact of being impacted by cancer uh turned into two novels yours and mine yes and so i as i was reading your novel uh I I was really struck by, of course, completely different themes in a way, but I think both of our books are sort of about how cancer impacts you and changes you, wouldn't you say? Yes, definitely. How did you, obviously, you wrote this book quite a long time after having cancer yourself. What would you say pushed you to to write the the book and what pushed you to make it a novel, not a memoir or or anything um, more kind of descriptive of your own experience? Okay, um, loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> As they are, huh? <laughs> I know. Well, it goes way back. Um, let's see, 27 years old, I was diagnosed with colon cancer. And I was 29, I think, when I entered grad school. So it wasn't too, let's see, 1999. Yeah, 1996, I finished chemo. And then I started grad school the following um, fall. And I 
took a creative nonfiction class and that was my opportunity to write about my cancer. Um, creative nonfiction, it's funny because I didn't really know what that was. Um, is it a memoir? Is it an autobiography? You know, that could actually be just um, nature writing. Um, to me, it was being creative or getting creative with, with uh, nonfiction. So almost fictionalizing it, right? Um, and that was not a cowardly way out, but you know, we're, it's, you're so vulnerable um, writing about sickness and yourself. And it was scary because I, I incorporated a lot of family dynamics in there. The novel's very character driven. So it's, you know, the eight-year-old is me, but the 19-year-old is me also because she's the one who gets the cancer. And um, it's, it's, it's so, oh my gosh, um, I can't even describe it. Um, when I started writing about it, I remember a line that I wrote in class. Um, I, it was a journal entry. Um, my second cousin had been diagnosed a month before I was. So he had a bone cancer, August of 95. And then September of 95, um, I was diagnosed with my colon cancer. And I made it through the year and he didn't. And I remember standing in front of this casket and looking at this, and he's, he was 10 years old. Mm. Mm. And I looked down at him and I felt guilty for being alive. Those were the words that were running through my head. Survivor's guilt, classically. Yes. Mm. Ugh, it was so intense. So just, you know, taking that class and then, you know, just sticking with it. I think I, um, I ended, it ended up being my thesis. Um, and I, I felt like I had to fictionalize it because it was just so raw. You know, I had just finished chemo, you know, experienced the death of a family member. Um, you know, my husband and I had just gotten married. So, you know, we were talking about this right before the show started. You know, he kind of had an out, right, as a caregiver. <laughs> like, wait, I don't have to do this. Um, you know, what if she's not around in a year? So, you know, that, that was pretty intense also, you know, just. Yeah, but as I was saying, that can also intensify the drive to stay because I know that happened for me with my own wife that um, I, I just felt as if uh, this was the only chance I'd have to be with her. Yeah. Uh, so that sort of drove me to hang in there that, you know, the love I felt for her sort of went in the other direction as well. And your and your husband didn't leave. So I'm assuming that that didn't appeal to him as an idea to to leave as a result of this arbitrary thing that had happened. Yeah, to Yeah, it wasn't an option. You know, we were, you know, 26 when we got engaged um, we were college friends. So, you know, we were best buddies in college and, you know, everybody always joked, you know, we never went out in college, but they could totally see us together. And so people weren't surprised <laughs> when we got together and yeah, it just wasn't an option. He was my best friend. Um, 
I, I think knowing, you know, having that experience of something incredibly difficult, of course, uh, I don't know how it would have been if my wife had lived and been cured somehow. She didn't have a curable illness. But, you know, if if there had been a life after cancer, would we have felt some kind of residue, right? Um, but I, I do know that I trusted her de- more, much more deeply, and she trusted me much more deeply because we both stuck. Mm. through what was one of the most one of the hardest things that can happen to you right yeah um so it goes in all different directions i'm i'm thinking yeah i I remember reading um i don't know if it was your blog or on your website you know you've the way you expressed it um was like you were preparing for her death and that was just so that just kind of blew my mind you know just starting off a relationship that way yeah, well, you know, you can't get it off. I couldn't get it off my mind. I'm kind of a realistic optimist. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> I, I hope for the best, but I, I'm not too good at denying the truth, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and I got less and less good at it as time went on. It's kind of like, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know what the odds are, right? Right, right. So then to for me, I sort of had to grapple with it. And, and I realized a long time later running groups that not everybody, some people who have cancer and then don't have it anymore, we hope, you know, like you, yeah. uh, it goes into remission and everything, actually haven't grappled with death. But she and I did because she never was cured. She was never in remission. None of that happened for, wow. you know, almost a decade. So I think that that affects it a lot. Do you feel as if that brought up that subject for you as a person during that time? Um, you know, the, just the subject of death that most yeah. people at that age haven't uh, thought deeply about yet, right? Yeah, I mean, I didn't know anything about any kind of cancer. Um, it was almost, you know, ignorance was bliss in a way because I was 27. I had just turned 27. Um, and... I couldn't really process my feelings at the time. I thought, okay, I have this diagnosis. What do I do now? I remember asking my doctor, am I going to die? I mean, that's the first thing that I asked him. I remember, you know, just crying in that little, you know, room of his. And, you know, he wanted me to come in person for the diagnosis. So we knew it was bad news. Um, But yeah, thinking of your own mortality, I wanted to quote um, a friend of mine. Well, actually, I never knew her. I knew her sister back in college, and she um, she had colon cancer. She fought it for four years or three years. Her name is uh, Marianne, and um, she died, I think, five years ago, colon mm-hmm. cancer at the age of 47. So I started reading her Caring Bridge uh, journals. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I was just so moved by them. Um, And there's a quote that I wanted to read. Each morning, I feel the loss of my future. While while I allow myself to grieve this, this loss, it helps me to remain optimistic and hopeful. 
So th- those words just really struck me. I feel the loss of my future. Like she expressed it so well, something I couldn't back then. Like I was yeah, feeling the a loss. paradox, isn't there? That mm-hmm. on the one hand, she's saying she feels the loss of her future. On the other hand, she's feeling so alive. Yes. That's why I call her a warrior, you know, because I think, wow, she, she didn't become a victim to this disease. Like, I hate it when people say, you know, I mean, it's true, you know, oh, she became, you know, she succumbed to this cancer. She's a victim of this cancer. But to me, you know, just reading through her entries, and even though she passed away five years ago, she's a warrior, and she always will be. Well, and also, yeah. it's, it's, life is not a war we can win. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, the whole idea that we fight and we win. Yeah, it's not, uh, it's it's not a war. <laughs> we, we have our strengths and, and things we're not so strong at, but one of my, my dear, dear friends um, had ovarian cancer for over six years, six and a half years, which is a very long time, especially at the time she had it. And she, she didn't ever resonate with it. So um, she decided that, that her image for, you know, the kind of visualizing the chemo working was going to be minions. And so <laughs> people sent her minion T-shirts and minion hats and buttons, you know. So she just pictured minions like gobbling up. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, and wow. I, I, that really worked for me, you know. That <laughs> she just couldn't go to war, but she could. Uh-huh. She could visualize. <laughs> yeah, you got to find some humor. I don't know, happiness. Some, you know, in <laughs> cartoon characters. I don't know. Oh, we do for what sure. we can. For sure. Well, I'd, I'd love for you to share a little bit from the book, if you would, um, just so people get a sense of the voice of the book, which, of course, is a, so interesting to choose to have a child's perspective on this experience, um, because there's a kind of flat out um, transparency that a child has that sometimes we don't have as adults, right? Yes. And I found that in old journal entries, or um, I guess I called them diaries back then. I had a Hello Kitty diary. I had a Holly Hobby diary. Um, So that tells you how old I am. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But um, I didn't, I I told this story in McKenna's voice um, in grad school, my last semester of grad school, 19, you know, 19 years old. The the 19 year old with cancer, you told me. Yes, yes. So I couldn't pull it off. I wrote this thesis and I wasn't that happy with it. And, you know, I explored different, you know, ways of telling the story. And then I came upon this voice because I was reading, I think Angela's Ashes at the time by Frank McCourt. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I loved the voice. It started out as four years old. And then I think it ended up 16 mm-hmm. um, by, by the end of the book. But I was so mesmerized by the voice because yes, you know, there was a transparency to it, this innocence, but this kind of adult-like quality to it. You know, there's a sophistication to it, but, you know, but you still knew it was a child talking. Let's, let's hear a bit of that. Okay. Okay. So um, the passage I'm going to read is um, in the first chapter slash vignette and eight-year-old Isabel, she is waiting for her sister to get home from the doctor. 
I hear a car engine in the driveway. The sound of McKenna's key in the lock makes my tongue feel heavy. And now all I can think about is Rocky Road with lots of marshmallows. When McKenna walks through the front door, her eyes are small and swollen. This is what happens to me if I cry right before I go to sleep. When I wake up in the morning, I look sort of Chinese like my great-grandmother Maymay from Shaman, and I try to fix it by putting blue ice over my eyelids, but that never works fast enough. McKenna sits on the curvy green couch in the living room that always makes Papa mutter under his breath, it's too green and too goddamn curvy. But I don't think he really wants this to stay under his breath. I walk over to McKenna, making sure my steps are quiet and careful because puffy eyes always mean rotten bad news in this house. I want to ask about 31 flavors, but McKenna pulls me close to her and presses her lips against my head. Iha, Papa says in a low voice from down the hallway. What did the doctor say? Shh, McKenna whispers into my ear, and the sound she makes is long and tired. Kenna Beach, Papa calls out. He's standing in the doorframe, trying to mask his frown by saying one of McKenna's nicknames. McKenna was named after McKenna Beach in Maui, where Papa took Mama for their honeymoon back in the 80s. Mama walks in, and she's holding a cantaloupe to her belly. I hear a cracking sound from the stairs, and we all look up and see Shavi biting into his bubblegum, making many explosions with it inside his mouth, which I think is cool, but really is low class, according to Papa. Colon cancer. This is all McKenna has to say. Mama drops the cantaloupe, and it clunks onto the floor and rolls towards Frida, who sniffs at it. A soft sound comes from Mama's lips that quiver like a fiddle string, like a hum, like a siren you can hear from far away. She starts making the sign of the cross over and over, as if it'll change the way things are. All of a sudden, Papa slams his hand down on the dining room table which makes Frida jump and lower her head like she did something wrong. That's a goddamn old man's disease, he says loud but not shouting. How can this be? <laughs> I, I'm imagining, you know, being the 19-year-old mostly, what it's like to have to tell people immediately and you know be an intensity of of family when what you were doing before that was you know leaving family <laughs> launching just yeah. and i hadn't left my family to i mean i was i think 24 when i left you know when i moved away from southern california and then three years later you know i had to tell them i had cancer yeah Let's go to a break and come back to that. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and um, all the rest. And uh, you can also look up my novel on my website at uh, Voice America. Be back soon. 
Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice of America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with author I.B. Casey Cui, also known as Maritza Ronyo Refuerzo, about her novel, Groovy Girl. And uh, before the break, we were kind of talking about, uh, you know, being in the process of launching from your family when you're pulled back to your family because of having to tell them you're sick. Uh, uh, I don't know if you follow a, a woman, uh, Seleka Jaoud, who uh, wrote a column, Life Interrupted, when she had cancer at 22, wow. and um, recently put out a book, and it and it really has some of uh, some similar themes, uh, being first generation, having your uh, the time when you're you're moving out to adulthood interrupted, you know, uh, cancer finds us with all the complicated relationships and family dynamics we had the day before, (laughs) just so many layers to it, aren't there? Yes, there are. Um, There's, you know, issues of 
self-identity too because you know you're still trying to find yourself well I'm, I'm still trying to find myself and i'm 53 um, <laughs> 27 though oh i had no idea you know i always knew i wanted to write but you know i thought is that, well, is that what you were going to do before you got cancer was well, that I, i've always wanted to do it but um you know my dad and mom being practical parents practical people you know they said you know, writing won't put food on the table. And, you know, I mean, they were kind of right. I mean, it's kind of a one in a million chance almost, you know, even if I think, you know, <laughs> celebrities have a bit of an edge <laughs> in, in the literary market. But um, I don't know, I, I wanted to do it because I've just always enjoyed writing. I've always enjoyed it. I just get a high from it. Um, and then I got better at it as I got older. Um, I would have to say that, you know, being 53 now versus 27, you know, my writing actually has evolved. And, and this my mom told me. Um, hi, mom. <laughs> <laughs> Hope they're all listening. <laughs> but you might not. I don't know. <laughs> I do, though. <laughs> do you believe that? I don't want to I don't want to assume anything for you. Do you believe that having cancer affected committing to your writing in a different way? I think it did. Um, Because right when I got the cancer, um, I was studying for the GMAT. So I had been studying for the LSAT before that. You know, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I did pretty well on the LSAT, but I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to pursue that path. So, you know, GMAT, okay, business school, it'll still make me six figures, you know, according to, um, you know, whatever, uh, <laughs> whatever my dad and mom told me back then. And not even just my dad and mom, it's just, you know, like that's what we grew up with. It's like, okay, we have to make this much money by the time we're this old, you know? So I had this goal of making six figures by the time I was 30, you know, which was so ridiculous. Um, and the moment I got the cancer, I, I stopped studying for the GMAT and I felt this big burden lifted. Mm. I thought, I can, I can do this now. I, don't, I mean, I don't know why it took the cancer. For me so it's to, kind of like gave you a, a, the capacity to really choose for yourself. It's yeah. interesting because a, a layer of your book that that I found so deep was um, the story of being a, an immigrant family. And I've worked with a lot of um, first generation people and People come here, I think, I don't know if they do anymore, but uh, you're either fleeing something or you're hoping for a better life. But but the person who comes, a better life is a better economic life often. Right, right. But I think for their children, it's a it's a life of more satisfaction sometimes. And there's a real tension between those two things sometimes. Um I think I think it's great when they coincide, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but it's not always looked at that way, and it sounds as if you had that kind of dichotomy. Your heart was in writing, but you felt the pressure to make good, in a way. I did. I did. Um, you know, um, 
You're right. People flee. I don't know if, if that's the right word, but you know, they want to, they want to have <laughs> a better. Some people flee, some people <laughs> leave. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, um, you know, my, my dad came, you know, to the U S pretty, he was pretty young. He was 19. Um, and my mom was 18. So they were actually pretty young for first generation. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, just that generation, um, you know, there's a bit of a chip on your shoulder. You know, you want to prove yourself. Sure. Um, do you want to say, hey, I made it, right? Like, look, mom, I made it. Redeem um, the choice for one thing, uh-huh. to leave to leave things, right? Yeah. And then they, Most people don't bring every, every part of their lives with them. Right, right. And then, you know, on their children... I mean, I think we see that, you know, we see how, how hard they work. You know, you know, my dad has his story of coming to the U.S., you know, with $2.36 in his pocket. And, you know, it was true. I mean, he didn't see his first $20 bill till he got to California. He went to Germany, then New York, then California, you know, and he had all kinds of odd jobs and, you know, just work, you know, his way to, you know, what he, what he really wanted to do. Um, and he actually, you know, Papa in the book is a real estate developer. And that's, you know, one of the last things my dad did before he retired. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, it's, yeah. And he, I think, you know, they, they just wanted us to be comfortable and, you know, being comfortable meant, Hey, you know, you got to make X amount of money to, right. to, to live this kind of lifestyle. Um you know, we didn't have an extravagant lifestyle. You know, they still live in the same townhouse that they they um, they bought in 1979. But I think it's just you know just doing the things you want, um, having enough, not not having to worry too much. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And of course, uh, cancer is a big wrench in the works of of earning as well. You know. <laughs> Uh, at least for most people I meet, it has some impact on capacity to work and all mm, kinds yep. of things. Um, so, of course, you were already disrupted in that way, I'm sure. Yeah, I couldn't work. I remember being on unemployment. Um, and I could, yeah, I was, I was sick maybe four days out of the seven days mm. of the week. So, you know, I was going in, you know, in for weekly treatments. Um, luckily I didn't have to stay long for the treatments. I think, you know, half an hour to 45 minutes. Um, I know some patients who are there for hours. Absolutely. Or even yeah. in, I've, I've known people who have to be inpatient. Yeah. They stay in the hospital. Yeah. Are dangerous in and of themselves, you know, pretty high danger. So, yeah, I mean, I was lucky. I was able to drive myself, um, sometimes, but then I'd get home and I'd pass out. I remember going to one session, a uh, chemo session, I guess, I think that's what I called it back then, a session. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I got home and a friend of mine visited me. She had just gotten back from the Philippines and, you know, she had a little picture frame for me and, you know, a little gift, you know, we're talking and my, you know, we're in the living room of my apartment and I fell asleep, like right in front of her at, in the middle of our conversation. 
I mean, that's I like that tired from what I hear. Yeah. It's a different it kind was, of tired. It was, oh my gosh. Yeah. Especially so. as, a, as a young person. I mean, young people are usually pretty good at staying up till all hours and, you know, yeah. I mean, not, sudden, not having to accommodate your body a whole lot. And then all of a sudden you're falling asleep without your permission. It's a big transition. It is. I mean, gosh, yeah, I was 27. I was 20 pounds less and how many years younger and you know I should have had more energy and I did I'm sure I did so if I got it now you know you know good luck to me (laughs) yes but but also though I I think uh it's such a jolt to be in that energetic time of life and then have to not be feeling that when everyone else your age is uh I'm not saying there's any advantageous time to get cancer, but I noticed that the people that are, that there's a real difference between the experience of my wife and her friends who were in their 30s and 40s at the time, mm-hmm. um, and the experience I'm seeing with my friends who are diagnosed now when I'm in my late 60s. Right. You know, uh, maybe slightly more expected for one thing. <laughs> you know, and also maybe not running around anyway in the same way you do at a at a young time. So just a different phenomenon, perhaps. Yeah, twenty seven. You know, not hardly any any of us were married yet. Um, you know, like I said before, you know, just kind of finding your place under the sun. Um, you know, people didn't really know. Some people didn't really know how to, you know, what to say to me. Right. Because, um, you know, we're 27. We're not in our 40s or 50s where a lot of, you know, my Nobody. friends right now are getting diagnosed. Nobody had training yet. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that can be, that can hurt. I don't know if you had that uh-huh. experience, but that can really hurt when people can't quite catch up to what's happening with you. Yeah. I, you know, for the, I think I, I got incredible support from family and friends. Um, but then there were, you know, some people who I talked to, I think, you know, a couple of years after the cancer, you know, and this one friend of mine said, Oh gosh, it's, I thought you were dying. And <laughs> that shocked me, you know, I thought like, wow, you know, were there people out there who, who thought I was dying? I mean, you know, I was stage three, so I wasn't, you know, totally in the clear. Even my own oncologist said, okay, let's get through this year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, don't read any cancer books because <laughs> they'll, well, they'll just freak you out. <laughs> right. And as much as um, going through cancer is still a, a horrible experience, right? More people do survive longer than they used to. Yes. So I do think that um, that kind of death sentence feeling about cancer is beginning to change a little bit um, because it isn't always. I think it's an uncertainty sentence, but mm-hmm. not always a death sentence. So that's that's kind of a change based on n- new treatment protocols and yeah. Well, especially with colon cancer. Um, you know, it's, I think now it's the number one, you know, cancer, you know, like cause of death um, used to be behind lung cancer. But um, I kind of remember, um, you know, just 
colon cancer is actually really preventable. Um, you know, if it tests people, in the mail, you know, yeah, if people, regularly. <laughs> yeah, if they talk about their symptoms, you know, it's the cancer that no one wanted to talk about, you know, cause you're talking about the dirty parts of your body, your colon, your, you know, your stools, you have to talk about the color of your stools. Um, I was so glad you included all those details in your novel, by the way. Oh, yeah, because yeah, we've got to get remembered. <laughs> we kind of get o- got to get over that, right? Yeah, you know, um, especially now with young onset colon cancer or just young onset cancer in right, general. Right, and you know the way in which it's it's even a little iffy to say the word breast in in you know mm-hmm. <laughs> in public. Yeah. Uh, well, how, then how do people talk about? I have a lump in my breast, right? <laughs> There's no way around it. You got to get more comfortable with language, don't I you? I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I remember being in a in a cancer support group and I was the only colon cancer patient and everyone else was a breast cancer patient. And, you know, they were all very open and comfortable and, you know, it was the the quote unquote trendy cancer to have <laughs> back then. And, you know, here comes this 27-year-old um, in the group and you know what you have an old man's disease you know like uh, people that's really familiar to me because my, yeah. my wife had um, multiple myeloma and it took uh, almost two years for her to be diagnosed because it's uh, she was young and black and most uh-huh. of the people who got it at that time were old and white and they were men uh-huh. yep. so she didn't fit the uh-huh. profile but that's the thing cancer doesn't care nope it doesn't. It doesn't. Let's, let's go to a, a break and we'll and we'll come back in a few minutes. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find everything about Groovy Girl, go to bookbaby or groovygirlnovel.com. And and do buy it at one of those places because um the the book benefits organizations and if you buy them in those two places it benefits them more be back after the break follow us on twitter at voice america trn get the lowdown on guests new shows and your favorites that's voice america trn this is good grief host cheryl jones whether you're in grief crisis deep loss or transition Working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with author, author Ivy Casey Cooey also known as Maritza, about her book, Groovy Girl. And um, I thought we'd start this segment maybe with a little more from the book. I like to give people a taste. (laughs) So they'll go and buy your book. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, I'm going to continue from my first excerpt. Um, It's still in the diagnosis uh, phase here. Let me try to find it. Um, Here we go. I watched McKenna with her sleepy face leaning against Papa, all limp and floppy, and I realize I don't feel sorry or scared. I feel mad. Why does she have to be so weak? I think to myself, even though I know it's wrong and terrible to be angry at someone who's sick. Mama doesn't like it when I call some of my girl classmates weaklings but it makes me super crazy hot on the inside when Callie Barone or Tallulah Lee pretend they can't go across the monkey bars because they don't want water blisters all over their soft little hands. A lot of my classmates have small bodies and even McKenna isn't much heavier than me and she's almost 12 years older. Everyone says I'm big boned but I've worked on it by drinking lots of Altadena milk and eating Spam and scrambled eggs and legal sardines with fried rice, which is what Papa likes to have in the morning before he goes to his job sites. McKenna is petite but muscular too, just like Frida. They both have legs as lean as a racehorse's, Mama always says. Mine are like tree stumps with kind of a big chunky butt to go with them. Papa walks behind McKenna up the stairs, his hand on her shoulder, all cautious, like the cancer could make her fall. Shavi and I follow Mama to the kitchen. Mama starts to grind coffee beans, which of course makes Frida bark and pace in circles because she hates squeaky noises. Shavi bites into a persimmon, not caring it's bitter. Colon cancer. My body is squirmy, and I think it's running a fever. Can someone open a window, please, I shout, even though the AC is on. And that's when I start firing away with the questions. Is McKenna hurting? No answer. How did this happen? Still nothing, but I'll bet they can hear me. 
how are the doctors going to fix her? I ask all of this out loud to anyone who will answer me. And when I realize my questions are the kinds you blurt out when you're worried, I feel wrong and terrible for being angry. I mean, I've, I've heard uh, adults describe all those feelings, uh, but not as fully, mm-hmm. like almost in a whisper. <laughs> you know? And I appreciated hearing everything loudly from, from Isa. You know, everything she she's felt. Loud. She's was, loud. Was right out there, right? <laughs> she's feisty and, and she's loud. You know, there's a kind of relief to it, isn't there? Uh, just this is what it is. You feel mad and guilty and, and confused and angry and sad. And why is everyone acting so crazy? And, you know, she just captured the whole thing um i mean yeah kids don't walk on eggshells right no they don't not (laughs) not until they learn to but you know she she hadn't learned that yet or maybe never would but also i i appreciated that um the family you captured was so many different things including contradictory in some ways like there was obviously so much love but also so much difficulty and and hurtful behavior and you know it, it all goes together it's all part of being a family but i think sometimes we act as if it needs to be all good uh or all bad even you know <laughs> just one thing but it isn't is it being in a family yeah, yeah i mean it's, it just seems like you know we we tend to hurt the people that are closest to us you know because we feel safe with them um, and because they clo- they get close to the bone <laughs> and oh, press, yeah. press buttons, right? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, for your next book, I have a request that you write about your about about Gus. <laughs> you know, I had an obvious interest in Gus as the as the the person who left the family largely because he was gay, right? <laughs> you know, I understand that phenomenon pretty well. Um, but everyone still loved him also. So, you know, yes, yes. It's a complicated thing, isn't it, family? I mean, yeah, I remember growing up, my, you know, all the titos, the uncles, you know, and my father and everyone else would tease him. And, you know, he took it like, oh, my gosh, like a, I want to say like a woman because <laughs> we're, we're tougher, right? Um, but wow. Well, but um, part of that, from my view, is also because that's going on inside. Mm-hmm. You know, no no person in, in an, um, and maybe some people now don't have uh, a big struggle around their identity, but when I came out, they sure did. Uh, you know, you you felt wrong and bad. You had to deal with feeling wrong and bad and then get to, but this is me. So uh, that that resonated. Um, So I wanted to ask you about this uh, before I let you out of here. You know, without giving away too too much, I guess, uh, McKenna's story with colon cancer ended up very differently from yours. And... um, you know, worse, of course. And I wondered what it was like to write that as someone who'd been through it. Um, was it, was it, uh, you know, you obviously made a choice to write it that way. And what was that like for you? It was, 
It was actually liberating. Um, I think I was telling you this before the show. Also, a friend of mine had, um, she's one of my early readers, and um, she wrote one of the first, I think she was the first Amazon review. And, you know, she just really got the book. And she said, ah, I know what you did. (laughs) Um, You know, it's, I don't want to give it away. How do I put this? But it's like you had to, you know, that that side of yourself had to, you know, had to go away in order for this other part of myself to emerge. The other Um, thing I wondered about is um, dealing with all the possibilities of an illness. Sometimes you can't do it at the time you actually are dealing with the illness. You're too busy doing the work of that. Right. And I, uh, I one time had someone come to a group uh, seven years after she finished treatment for her second cancer. And she said, I just can't get over being terribly anxious. And because she hadn't dealt with the possibilities that were inherent in that experience. Right. She hadn't right. she hadn't kind of grappled with it. And um she stayed in the group quite a while, and by the end, she'd grappled with it because she was talking about it with people and mm-hmm. and exploring it. So I could imagine there was some of that in it. Yeah, um, the one of the last scenes in the book. I actually, it was one of the first scenes I wrote, probably twenty plus years ago. You know, and it was based on my grandfather. Um, he had he actually had colon cancer. Um, and he was 85, so he was well over 50, you know, the typical old man. Um, so, you know, my oncologist thought, oh, maybe that's your tie, but no, because he was 85, you know, an older man already. So I don't think there's any link there. But, you know, writing one of the, those last scenes, you know, I, it was based on, you know, the day he died. You know, just the, you know, the car ride, everything just, you know, and then, you know, being one of the caregivers in his last days. Um, yeah, it was emotional, but also, yeah, like I said, it was liberating because, you know, I was able to talk about it. I was able to write about it. And I knew that I would share my story someday. And here I am. <laughs> here you are doing it. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Finally, right? Oh my right. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, every week when I sit down to to talk in in this format, right? And every day when I'm working with clients, there's no way I'd be doing any of this if I hadn't had that experience. Exactly. And I I, I continue to grow, change and evolve around it. Um, because that's what you do if you're human. You you keep responding to the experiences you've had and hopefully, you know, making more and more out of them, right? Yes. So it's, I can't yeah. divide who I am from what happened because it grew me. Not the thing, but the grappling. Um, yeah. So I was thinking, yeah. thinking about that in some ways that being able to get to the point And maybe I was projecting because I also wrote a novel much later than the experience um, that there is a way that you come to terms differently, um, creatively expressing about what you've been through. Yeah, um, I think just, you know, coming to terms with it, 
it was it wasn't that you know much after my diagnosis but you know it was still pretty fresh um but writing about it now because you know I, I kept going with the novel for you know over 20 years <laughs> um it, it can be a long process right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially during the pandemic I mean I there, I did a really big overhaul on this book and you know, I added some stream of consciousness. You know, you remember the, all the italicized sections in the yes, book yes. are yes. her stream of consciousness. And that actually wasn't there before, mm. before the pandemic. And it came after. So, you know, it's just about perspective, right? Just, you know, getting That's- into more of the emotional part. Because, yeah, I was too busy dealing with all the other stuff. Before. That's interesting because I've started to hear those stories of, you know, what people did during that time, right? Mm-hmm. People who wrote music, you know, who were, because if you're off performing all the time, it's harder to write music. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, the people who, who like you, um, got down to uh, a different level of writing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if we're going to have horrible times, let's make something out of it, huh? Right. I mean, I felt more creative during the pandemic. I actually, um, my older son is 12 and a half. You know, we composed two songs together during Mm. the pandemic. And it was so crazy because I'm not a composer. You know, my musical theories, you know, horrible, atrocious. Um, (laughs) But I was hearing songs in my head and my um my son is better at the theory so you know we did it together and it was so rewarding you know maybe there's a piece of that though too maritza that's about um not having the audience so much in mind because uh if you're just doing something because you need to do it Mm-hmm. It's different than thinking someone's going to hear it or, you know, <laughs> it's, you're going to perform it somewhere. Or, yeah. um, there's a freedom about it. Like the musicians I know who did something just because they needed to be doing music, it had a different quality. It was it was for fun almost or for, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't it wasn't as worky. Does that make sense? Oh, it totally makes sense um, because. I, you know, it, it's such a cliche, you know, love what you do, right? And, you know, now that I, I feel like I'm a, a real writer now. Um, <laughs> I, a real I, writer. I know. Otherwise known as a person who writes. <laughs> I, was, I, was a fake, I was a fake writer before. <laughs> oh, that's such a good place to end. I love that. Thanks for being here today. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. To find the book, go to Groovy Girl or book at Book Baby or GroovyGirlNovel.com. Next week, I'll have Carol Finitza to talk about how she came to write Murder on Hollywood Beach, her first novel, a murder mystery. Writing it helped her to grapple with the struggles her daughter had with addiction. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.